elders of Bethlehem, trustees of our school, President Tomlinson, Chancellor Piper, fellow colleagues, friends, and family, I am delighted that you're here. I feel honored by our God that he lets me serve as an elder of Bethlehem Baptist Church and that he has given me the post of professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary. At our school, one of the bulwarks upon which we build everything is the purifying power of the promises of God. This last January, my students met with Pastor John Piper for a week studying his book, Future Grace. That's all about God's promises. Promises of future grace that we put our trust in and it changes who we are today. What we dread and what we hope for tomorrow impacts our present ethic. The promises of God are highly significant. And what happened was students came into my classroom saying, is it okay for us to claim Old Testament promises when they were given to different people and under different covenants? So tonight is set aside to try to answer that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you control all things and you work all things well. You are perfectly trustworthy and ever faithful and we rest our hope in you. Because of Jesus, you can give us mercy and we can count on you being for us 100% in every one of our tomorrows. Meet us tonight, glorify your son, and help. Help us appropriate in faithful ways those promises that you have given in the initial three-fourths of your Bible. Through Jesus I pray, amen. The Apostle Peter declared the importance of God's promises for us in our lives, in our pursuit of holiness. God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world that's brought about by evil desire. Through the promises, we can begin to look more like God, partake of the divine nature. We put our trust in those promises and it changes us. We escape the corruption of the world that's, that's brought about by evil desire. Sin is making promises and trying to create desires in our soul. And the answer of this text is battle the desires of the world with higher level desires. And this is the essence of Pastor John's book, Future Grace, which is out there on the table. It's an amazing book that's just saturated with the promises of God for we as believers that we can trust in to help nurture our lives, our pursuit of holiness. For example, if we're overcome with worry, is my child's illness going to ever get corrected? What's going to happen to my dad now that he's lost his job? Am I going to be able to have enough money to pay for tuition? Anxiety fills us, and the answer would be, is there a promise that can help me? 
Oh, that the peace of God that transcends all understanding could guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. That peace could come. How do I get there? Say no to anxiety and pray. With thanksgiving and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm on the internet and all of a sudden an image comes up and it's selling something. The image is of immodesty. It's objectifying women. It's immoral. But it's, it's selling something, saying you want, to, you want this. You want to desire this. It's making promises. And I have to, to kill that promise with a higher level promise like the pure in heart will see God. Do I want to see God today? Do I want to go to higher levels of seeing and savoring his beauty? How? How do I get there? The pure in heart will see God. And all of a sudden, I say no to lust and yes to purity because it's the channel for seeing God. I don't know if, if I'm really up for going to an unengaged people group They're unengaged because they're so hard to reach. Indeed, it could cost me my life. And all of a sudden, we're reminded of a warning. Don't you fear man who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And all of a sudden, dread is awakened in my soul. A godly fear that makes me not fear man and makes me say, okay, God, I will follow you. This sin has been so overwhelming, I haven't been able to beat it. It may just take me. I I don't know what to do. Am I going to hold fast to, to my God? And all of a sudden, I remember, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The promises of God are given to us. One reason is in order to nurture holiness in our soul. But that's not the only reason. Another reason that they're given to us is that we might find comfort in the midst of our affliction. This is my comfort in my affliction, says the psalmist, that your promises give me life. So when the tears flow... We call to mind, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the humble, Psalm 147, 3 and 6. When the darkness lingers, we believe that the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new when? Every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And so we we sing praises to the Lord. We give thanks to his holy name. Why? For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. These promises like that one from Psalm 30 or the previous one from the Lamentations 3, we just hold on to them. When fear begins to grip our soul, We say, oh, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, Isaiah 41.10. And when we do begin to worry, when we feel alone, Yahweh's pledge rings in our ears. When you pass through the water, I will be with you. Through the river, it will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Indeed, the flame will not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God. 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3. And finally, when death's shadow comes near, we remember the Lord is my shepherd. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. Goodness and mercy pursuing me all the days of my life. Last week I had something happen that had never happened before. Four people that I loved died. The Lord is my shepherd. Their spouses that are now left alone, their beds empty. But even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. In suffering, we need promises. But all those promises that I just mentioned, every single one of them is from the Old Testament. It was given to different people in a different age under different covenants. So can I really claim them? Is it okay for me to teach my kids, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. Can I sing that for my kids? I'll tell you that the prosperity gospel advocates very quickly say, yes, you can, indeed you must, and by faith, you can claim all those blessings, like the ones in Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So can we claim the Old Testament promises? It's not my goal tonight to principally target the prosperity teaching. It's my goal to try to help saints understand how we can use the Old Testament promises without abusing them. Now, I believe it would be the wrong approach to say, oh, Deuteronomy 28, don't go there. That's Old Covenant. We're New Covenant saints. Why would I say that's the wrong approach? Because the New Testament is loaded with Old Covenant promises that the, that the apostles are claiming and saying, these are for us. For example, Romans 12, 19. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is Paul's antidote for bitterness. You've been hurt by someone else, Paul says, don't repay evil with evil. Repay evil with good. How, Paul? Do you know what you're asking me to do? Yes, repay evil for good. Don't avenge yourselves. Here's the motivation. Because vengeance is mine. What does that mean? As hard as your life has been, as wounded as you feel, God knows your pain. And he is not pushing it aside. But what he's declaring is that he can bring greater justice than any of us ever could do against our enemies. So will you trust his promise? Will you trust that he will indeed bring vengeance his way and in his time? If you will, it'll empower you to be able to even love your enemies. But what's amazing is this is an Old Testament promise. Not only that, 
Hebrews 13, another example. Keep your life free from the lun of love of money and be content with what you have, Christians. For why should I nurture contentment and fight covetousness? Because the Lord has written, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? A statement of confidence straight out of Psalm 118. But before that, a promise. But this wasn't even a promise given to a people. This was a promise given to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. A single man gearing up to lead Israel into the promised land. Know this, Josh, I'm with you. Don't fear. Be strong and courageous. And somehow the writer of Hebrews says, that's a promise for me. It seems like that's just taking something right out of context. And yet, the writer of the Hebrews says, this is how we should be reading our Bibles. How does he get there? So what I've got is five foundational principles that have shaped my thinking, all of them drawn straight from texts that I've been able to shape, and I'm going to walk through these principles, and then I'm going to offer three guidelines, and we'll be done in a couple hours or so. <laughs> Number one, Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. Now, after I had pre prepared this presentation, I was doing some Googling this week, and I just typed in promises Old Testament. What do I find? Oh, Pastor John's, the top two hits. I should probably look at them. So in a, in a look at the book last year and at an Ask Pastor John, he actually answered the questions. Somebody had written in, and he's like, the question was, can a Christian really appropriate Old Testament promises? And he said, okay, yes, they can. Let's go to Galatians 3. And that's where I was going. So I, I feel this is, this is good. It's nice he saw the same thing I was seeing. Same text he went to. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Paul in Galatians is targeting false teaching. There's a bunch of Jews who showed up that said, Gentiles, you want to be sons of Abraham? You got to go through the law. And Paul says in Galatians 3, there was an age of law when the law was our guardian, but know this, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. That is, now that Jesus has come, we're no longer under the law covenant. But that's not all that he says. He says back there, Abraham had faith and was the recipient of the promise before the law even appeared. And if you've got faith like Abraham you become sons of Abraham, heirs of the promises. Look how he argues. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now that is amazing. That Abraham receives promises of blessing and now we, the church, get to enjoy what God promised Abraham in the Old Testament? How does that happen? He quotes a text here, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And it's actually a conflation of two texts. 
In Genesis 12, 3, we read, In you, Abraham, all the families of the ground will be blessed. So we got the in you and the be blessed part. And it's in another text, Genesis 22, 18, where we learn, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it seems as though Paul is drawing together these two texts and saying that's the gospel It was promised then, and you and I, through faith in Jesus, get to benefit from it. Here's the second of those texts, Genesis 22, 17b and 18. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, I want to draw attention to a few things here. First off, notice it's your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies enemies. That suggests the agent of blessing is not the nation at large, but a single person. A male, single offspring of Abraham. Now, the word offspring is like deer. You can see one deer, you can see lots of deer. But the deer word doesn't change grammatically. It's always singular grammatically, but it can have plural or singular reference. So too with seed. You can have one seed or you can have a handful of seed. So you've got to look at the context in order to decide is the offspring singular or plural. But sometimes Moses could give us clues, like pronouns. In Genesis 17, 8, he uses a plural pronoun. He says, Abraham, I will give to you and your offspring... This land is an everlasting possession throughout their generations. That means the offspring is plural people. He can use the the plural pronoun when he chooses to. So the fact that he uses the singular suggests that the blessing that Abraham was anticipating would ultimately come through a single individual. Notice Paul's argument here. Now to the, the promises, plural, promises that were given to Abraham, land, offspring, blessing, all those promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham to whom the promises were given, and then if you are in Christ, if you are Christ's, then you become Abraham's offspring, heirs of all the promises. For all the promises find their yes in Christ. See that? That's vitally important. It's in Christ that we gain anything. The promises are yes only in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. All of you probably pray at your meals and the signal that it's time to eat is amen. What we're declaring there is, may it be so. I believe it. I believe it to be true, what I've just prayed. Why? The only reason you can believe that God would work on our behalf is because of blood-bought mercy. Otherwise, God will not listen to to prayers. He listens to prayers because they're purchased for us, that he he can actually listen 
an answer in a way that is for us and not against us, that means Jesus makes that possible. We declare our amen through him to God for the glory of Jesus every time we pray. Foundational principle one, Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. Here it is. God makes promises to Abraham and to his seed. Christ is the seed. Faith unites us with Christ. Union with Christ makes us seed with Jesus. And so we become heirs of the promises. Now that structure right there is actually something that Pastor John laid out on his look at the book. So I just saw that this week and I thought, oh, that'll be helpful. So I've brought it in. Point two. All all Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. Curses are promises in the Old Testament. And I'm saying they too cross through Christ and relate to us. Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. I'll talk about how how does the New Covenant have curses in a little bit. But This is what I'm referring to. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Remember that text? It's cited by Paul numerous times. It's alluded specifically, it's alluded to by Paul in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where he says, a Jew is not one outwardly. No, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. Paul's thinking, we're living in the age of heart circumcision, where the Spirit has come and transformed people. But now notice the next verse. And in that day, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. In the day when your hearts are circumcised, all the covenant curses in Deuteronomy are still going to matter. Because the old covenant curses are going to become the new covenant curses. We already had this anticipated in the covenant with Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. But the one who dishonors you, Abraham, I will curse. That's an Abrahamic covenant curse built into the system that those who stand against Abraham, God will judge. And the new covenant is realizing that. That's new covenant curses. They're not curses outside the new covenant. They're built into the new covenant that God will judge the enemies, all of his enemies and the enemies of his people. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Who's the there? Their doom. For the Lord will vindicate his people, it's not them, and have compassion on his servants. Deuteronomy 32 is looking on the other side of curse. That Israel's exile, and on the other side of curse was restoration. And in that day, vengeance will be God's. And this is the text that Paul cites in Romans 12 that we already looked at. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 cites the same text and is declaring it to be a new covenant curse that all of us, if we are in Jesus, can put our hope in. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ, and all Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. Uh, Number three, as part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old 
covenants, original and restoration blessings. Now, I've just got to step back here to talk about the structure of old covenant blessings and curses. If you go to Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28, you'll just see long, long lists. You start out with blessings. If you obey Israel, then provision and protection will come. The rains will flow. The crops will grow. The wombs will be open. The enemies will be standing aside. But if you disobey, all of that provision and protection will get turned on its head. Curses. Your wombs will be closed. The rain will not come. It'll be like an iron sky. The enemies will just pour in and you'll be devastated. That's the curses. And the culminating curse in Deuteronomy and Leviticus is the exile, which is talked about as death. Death. Suggesting that if anything was to happen afterwards, it would take rebirth. New creation. But that's exactly where God goes. Both at the end of Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 30, the curses are not the final word. God promises, I'm going to preserve a remnant and raise up restoration blessing. Curses, sorry, original blessings, curses, restoration blessings. And what I'm saying is that these restoration blessings, and you know many of them, like Jeremiah 31, I'll make a new covenant with you. That's a restoration blessing on the other side of exile. And we're enjoying it today. The restoration blessings are nothing other than the new covenant blessings. But what I'm saying is that also the original blessings are part of the new covenant blessings. That is that all the original blessings get subsumed into the restoration blessings, yet in escalation. Let me see if I can argue that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, So we have these promises, beloved. Since we have them, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice the connection between pursuit of holiness and promises. Since we have the promises, we have fuel to move us toward holiness. So start working at it. Pursue it. But what promises is he talking about? He says we have them. Well, at the end of chapter 6, he's got a whole list of Old Testament promises. And all of those Old Testament promises that he says we have as Christians... All of them are, are designed to, to engage, uh, Paul says, don't be une unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't link with unbelievers. Why? There's one key reason why. And here's where he lays it out. This is the very first of the promises that he mentions. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The Holy One is in our midst, and therefore the call is for us to be holy. But notice what he says. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's a promise. Four of them. I will make my dwelling. I will walk. I will be. They shall be. Now, where does he draw this promise from? And what we're going to see is that he draws it, I believe, from two texts, one of which is a restoration blessing, but the other is an original blessing. We begin with Ezekiel 37. 
Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 37, those are the two texts. But let's start in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel says, my dwelling place, this is actually God talking through his prophet, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You remember Ezekiel 37, where it begins? It begins in a valley with a vision of dry bones. Everything, all the people are dead. This is where their law-keeping got them. Those who do, um, if you do the law, you will live, said Leviticus 18.5. And Israel didn't do the law, and therefore they didn't live. They resulted in a bunch of corpses, dry bones. They've been dead for a long time. It would take resurrection. It would take new birth. And that's exactly what happens. This says the Spirit of God blew over these bones, and they stood up. And all of a sudden, they gained skin. And then the Spirit came and rested upon them as if each of those bodies was like a temple. The very presence of God resting upon them. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that statement, notice there's two parts to the promise, the dwelling part and the I will be your God, you will be my people. Ezekiel 37 is word for word what Paul has in... Ezekiel 37 is word for word what Paul has in 2 Corinthians 6. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, says Paul. So I think he's, he's pulling, he's got Ezekiel 37 directly on his mind. Why is it that we're the temple? Because Ezekiel anticipated that God would make his dwelling among his people. But notice something different. And that is that in 2 Corinthians 6, the word walking shows up. God is a walker among his people. And in Ezekiel, walk does not show up anywhere. But it does show up in Leviticus 26. Here's Leviticus 26. It has original blessings, curses, restoration blessings, but Leviticus 26, 11, and 12 is from the first part, from the original blessings up top. Here's what it says. Israel, if you'll walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Paul gets the walking part from Leviticus 26, at least. Now, what's amazing is that Leviticus 26, in the original blessing context, it was conditioned on perfect obedience, and Israel didn't obey. Thus, they ended up in a valley of dry bones. So how is it that we as the church could get that original promise given to Israel operative in our lives, like Paul appears to be saying it is? And I suggest it must have something to do with Jesus, who is both the temple and the presence of God, who perfectly obeys and secures for us the very presence that this promise conditioned on obedience. Paul's drawing together the original blessing and the restoration blessing. He's, he's taking the original blessing and seeing it's related to the restoration blessing, and all of it comes to us through Christ. So Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. All Old Covenant curses become New Covenant curses. And as part of the New Covenant, Christians inherit the Old Covenant's original and restoration blessings. Now that would include all those blessings that I read about in Deuteronomy 
28. So that's why we need principle four. Through the Spirit, some blessings of the Christian's inheritance are already enjoyed, whereas others are not yet. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Did you get that? In Christ, he's blessed us. It's the only way it comes. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. Now the first part. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Most scholars think that the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places refer to the blessings that the Spirit of Christ has secured for the saints. That would include many already blessings, like election, adoption to sonship, redemption, forgiveness, sealing, all of which Paul unpacks in the very next verses. But it would also include the blessings that we don't have yet. Look at the end of the passage. The spirit that we now have is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, meaning that we don't have it yet. Some we have, others we don't. And it seems significant to me that Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, when he's saying, when he's thinking about the promises that are ours, and the one that he actually tells the Christians is ours now is related to a spiritual reality associated with God's presence. He doesn't go to the material blessings. I think they're part of the future. We're not anticipating to be in heaven forever. We're anticipating a new earth with resurrected bodies where we might get to eat fish and chips and hot fudge sundaes and See glories forever and ever. We're expecting material blessings, but not yet. We could touch on other passages, but I'll go to number five. All true Christians will persevere and thus receive our full inheritance. I'm not going to go into, into Hebrews here. It, it'd just take way too long. But the point is, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at the beginning. All those who are truly in Christ will persevere and by that receive the great inheritance. Christians benefit from Old Testament promises only through Christ. All Old Testament curses become new covenant curses. As part of the new covenant, Christians inherit the old covenant's original and restoration blessings through the Spirit, some blessings of the Christian's inheritance are already enjoyed, whereas others are not yet. All true Christians will persevere and thus receive our full inheritance. Okay? Just reach over, hug your neighbor, stretch. Most of you are not used to coming to the classroom. So, just stretch. We're not in the end yet. Guidelines for appropriating Old Testament promises. I have three. The first two try to bring together what we've seen so far in my principles, and then the last one is just the payoff that I want you to go home with. Number one, 
first guideline when you're thinking about the Christian's relationship to Old Testament promises, number one, celebrate that in Christ all God's promises, old and new, are already, yes, both the blessings and the curses. Every promise finds its yes in Christ. The blessings, what I mean is that in Christ believers inherit all the blessings that are secured for us, enjoying some now and some still to come. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. We are indeed heirs of all those promises. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But there's also curses. New covenant curses. The first thing you need to see is that those in Christ will not experience the ultimate curse in any punitive way. Why? Because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. The curse of the law covenant that Moses says all of that will be put into the new covenant will not touch us ultimately because Christ has taken it for us. This is the great exchange. Our iniquities put onto Christ, his righteousness counted for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We can still experience levels of curse, but it won't ultimately result in our ruin. The wrath of God comes to us in various forms, but not the ultimate wrath. I'm thinking about the wrath like if you speed and the police catch you. Romans 13 calls that the wrath of God, that the government is there to bring the wrath of God on whoever doesn't do good. Christians could experience that. How about 1 Corinthians where some believers were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way and by God's grace he brought them to death. He, he killed them and brought them home so that they wouldn't keep going in their ruin. They experienced the discipline of God and yet they were saved. Saved because Christ took the wrath upon himself. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the ultimate wrath of God? So, so how do we understand the curses in the new covenant? Number one, the curses supply a means of grace to the elect to generate reverent fear of God leading to holiness. This is one of the functions of the curses in the new covenant. When I say curses, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about things like Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, Jesus' blessings and woes in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, or any of the numerous warnings that dot the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, the book of Hebrews, and Revelation. For example, hear this new covenant curse. From 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. We as believers are not just supposed to push that aside and say, oh, that's hypothetical. I believe in the security of the believer. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. We're supposed to have fear of God awakened in our soul. Dread of what could be 
if I deny him. Because believe me, anyone who denies Jesus, he will deny. Anyone. You might think you're in, and if you deny him, you're not. How about Hebrews chapter 10? If we go on sinning, Christians, he's talking to churches here. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27. That's, that's heavy warning. And we're not supposed to say, oh, that's just hypothetical. We're supposed to feel the gift of God, that that is a tool, a means of grace to awaken fear in our souls. Fear that will push us to holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, Daroshi, it almost sounds like you're saying you don't believe in perseverance of the saints. Oh, I do. I do. I believe that we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at the beginning, Hebrews 3.14. If we hold firmly all the way to the end, then we can be certain we were in Christ. We're sharing with Christ. Our perseverance proves that we indeed had identified with him. There's nights when I go to bed after I've seen sin awakened in my soul so much and I just go to bed remembering Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. Hear that. Oh, that's hope. My perseverance tomorrow is not dependent on me. It's dependent on that promise. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. I will not turn from you. That's our God talking to you, talking to me if we are in Jesus. Indeed, I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will not turn from me. The fear of God as a gift of new covenant blood-bought grace. Where does it, what is it supposed to do? Where, where's that, where am I supposed to get that fear from warnings like this? It's a gift of grace to our soul. It's part of the means of grace, not just hoping what we hope in tomorrow will change who we are today. What we dread tomorrow will change who we are today. Number two reason why we have these curses, because they declare lasting punishment on our enemies. And that is a gift of grace to each of us. Because we live in a broken world and we often get very hurt by people that we thought cared for us. And we just need to know God knows and he cares. And he will bring justice. New covenant curses. First guideline, celebrate that in Christ all God's promises, old and new, are already yes, both the blessings and the curses. Guideline two, affirm that while all the Bible's promises, old and new, are already yes in Christ, they are not yet all fully realized. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's not all here yet. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And hope that is seen is not hope, says Paul in Romans 8. This is hope. 
born again to a living hope. How did it come? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's where everything starts. Every yes happens because he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise, we have no hope. But we have all the hope because the Old Testament declared both his death and his resurrection. And it's happened. And all of a sudden, confidence has awakened in our soul and he's purchased for us all these promises that motivate us. We're living in what we can call the overlap of the ages. The future has come into the present and yet the past still lingers. The old age in Adam with death and disease and destruction and sin is still impacting you and me. And yet, we are citizens of a different land. We're exiles in our present state, anticipating the day when Christ will appear a second time, this time, in order to save all that he died for. God does promise to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 But in only Philippians 4.12, he had just said, I've learned to be brought low and how to abound. We rest confident in Jesus' command and his promise, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will just be put into your lap, Luke 6.38. That's true. And yet, this Apostle Paul who, who just rested in the promises of God still experienced beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and danger and toil and hardship and sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28. The prosperity gospel is not wrong to say that we can claim Old Testament promises. It's wrong in the fact that it is trying to claim all of them too soon. They have an over-realized eschatology. They're trying to bring the future into the present too quickly. The New Testament is clear that we are to expect suffering and tribulation and affliction. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The servant is not above his master, and if the master had to die, what do you think that means for you? Cross-bearer. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Many in the prosperity teaching will say, oh yes, we're to expect persecution, but but no more. Health and wealth is still ours with persecutions. And yet Paul experienced trials far broader, broader than persecution, like Job Afflictions and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5. And as he did, he said, in any and every circumstance, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of facing hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. We still battle sin, but because the future is intruded into the present, we're not enslaved by it. There's power available for us, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our bodies, 
wasting away. Cancer? Broken bones? Yes. We're still part of that world in Adam. The first death, unless Jesus returns, will take all of us in this room. Our bodies are are wearying, and yet there's also something going on in the soul of everyone who is a son of Abraham, a son of Jesus. We are moving from one stage of glory to the next. Our faith and our hope are growing. Our suffering is producing patience, and patience is producing perseverance, and perseverance will not disappoint. We will all experience death unless Jesus comes back. But for the believers, death is gain. Because the future has intruded, we have hope. Hope beyond the grave. Number one, we celebrate that in Christ all God's promises, old and new, are yes, including the blessings and the curses. But we also affirm that even though that is true, they are not yet all fully realized. Last point. That's big. Number three. Last guideline, and this is the biggest payoff for you. Consider how Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament hopes influences our appropriation of Old Testament promises. What I'm saying is that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus and all fulfillment comes from him. So we have to have him at the center of our perception of history. We have to have a framework regarding Old Testament promises that has Jesus as the filter, or we could say as the lens. And what we need to understand is that as the promises come to us, Old Testament promises through Christ, and we want to appropriate them in this new covenant fulfillment, we have to recognize that not all promises are equal. That when Jesus fulfills the promises, different things happen depending on which promise it is. So you need to have a a framework for for thinking about the promises of God and I've got four categories that I think can help you when you're doing your devotions or when you're serving your kids, when you're trying to, to teach in small group and you're wanting to say, how is this promise for me? Not is it, how is it? Some promises, like a lens, come through the center and are not changed at all. That is... When Jesus fulfills the promise, God maintains the very framework or nature of that promise without any distinction, without any change. The same people to whom it was given are the same ones to whom it's given now. But other promises still come through the center of the lens. They're maintained without a change, and yet the parties that are recipients of that promise do get changed. Jesus at the center, say promises given to Israel. Jesus is exalted as the representative of Israel. And now we might get to benefit from some of the promises that were given to Israel because we're in the representative of Israel. Not only that, there's other promises, and we just have to be aware of this, that have already been realized, already completed. And finally, there's some promises when Jesus fulfills them, God completely transforms them. The very uh, form, makeup of that promise gets transformed and the audience is transformed. Let's look at each of these. Maintained with no extension. By extension, I mean to new parties. Maintained refers to the promise itself and then I'm saying 
The parties don't change either. Here's the example, and this has been helpful for me in the last two weeks. Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament promises resurrection. Grounded in texts like Deuteronomy 32, 29. I am Yahweh, there is no other. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. God says that. The healing comes after the wounding. Which suggests that when he says, I kill and I make alive, he's talking about resurrection. You see that? Resurrection was anticipated by Daniel. And Jesus, I think with this text in mind, says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice. Notice that Jesus is in the center of the future resurrection. They'll hear the Son of Man's voice. They'll come out of those tombs, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All of our deeds are fruit, not root. The gardener is going to look at the tree and he's going to say, does that tree have fruit on it? If it does, the fruit doesn't make the tree alive. It just proves that the tree is alive. And all the trees that have fruit will go up to resurrection of life. But where there was no fruit, down to the resurrection of judgment. So this isn't salvation by works at all. This is simply, there's proof that indeed Jesus has changed your life. And everything hinges on the Son of Man's coming. He's the one who's going to make it happen. But the, the promise was given in the old, and I don't see any change in the new. It's just maintained constantly through Jesus, and yet it doesn't happen apart from him. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. If he doesn't raise, we don't raise. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, that's the condition, though he die, yet shall he live. The beauty of the four deaths in my life last week. A motherly figure to my wife. A 24-year-old son of one of my Sunday school couples died of cancer, leaving his wife a widow. The pastor in the church that I grew up in, the pastor who married Teresa and I 23 years ago, and then a 34-year-old beautiful woman lost her battle to cancer, leaving her husband's bed empty. All of them experiencing the first death, and yet none of them will taste the second death. They're alive. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And they're with God now because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And they have hope for this resurrection. They will gain new bodies along with all of us. May we all be in the same place. Old Testament promises that are maintained but with extension. 
That is that the parties that receive the same promise get extended. Divine presence with Joshua. We've already seen this in the book of Hebrews. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Moses dies and Joshua is his successor. Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh, save. That's his name. And he's the one that God sets up to be the instrument to lead God's people into the promised land. God says, I'm going to be with you, Josh. Now, what does that imply? If God's with Joshua and you're following Joshua, then God's with you. If you're where Joshua is and God's where Joshua is, then you both get to delight in God. Now, what's intriguing is that in Psalm 95, well, before I get to Psalm 95, let me put the second text up. Here's the Hebrews text. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's citing this promise given to Joshua. How does he get there? Well, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 3, the author recalls Psalm 95. Today, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Indeed, for 40 years they were underneath my judgment and they did not enter rest. That's Psalm 95, written within the promised land. And then the writer reflects in chapter 4, saying, if Joshua had actually taken them in and given them the rest, why is it that the psalmist, who was already in the land, was calling people to not be like them, as if there was more rest ahead? And the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus is the one who's going to take you in. He's the greater Joshua. Indeed, his name is Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh, save He's also Emmanuel, God with us. If God was with the first Joshua, how much more with the greater Joshua? And if you're a follower of Jesus, then guess what? If God's with Jesus, God's with you. Oh, that Achan would have been awakened that God was enough. But instead, he saw the riches of Jericho and he claimed them for himself. He was the coveter. And the writer of the Hebrews says, keep your, keep your life free from the love of money. How? How do I get there? God's with you, and he's enough. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's enough. So what, do I, what am I seeing here? God promises to be with Joshua as he leads God's people into the promised land. All those who follow Joshua would also enjoy God's presence. Joshua's name and role points ahead to Jesus, who's the greater Joshua. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who is leading God's people into a greater promised land. And all those who follow Jesus get to enjoy God's presence. Next example. I love this text. I, I really love this text. Isaiah 49, 3 through 6. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now just, let's pause there. He's talking to someone. You're my servant, and then he gives him a name, Israel. Now if I'm just a casual reader of the Old Testament, I would automatically think, oh, 
He's treating the nation Israel like a person who's his servant. But as we're going to see, that's not what he's doing. You're my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, he's still talking to the same person. God's still talking. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. What's the servant's name? Israel. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring the preserved of Israel back. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The servant is Israel, and Israel's mission is to save Israel. And not only Israel, but the Gentile nations to the ends of the earth. How does Israel save Israel? Because we're talking about a person who represents completely the people, who identifies in every way, ultimately, with all of their sin. He is the nation, embodied And he has a mission to save the people, and not only those people, the Jews, but the rest of the world. Notice what Paul does with this text. Focusing on the very end of this verse, he says in Acts 26, 22, and 23, I stand here testifying both the great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead... He, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's looking at this Old Testament promise and he's saying, do you understand? It comes through and it is Jesus. Jesus is the servant. Christ is Israel who is designed, who's been called to save Israel. He alludes to Isaiah 49, 6. But earlier in the book, he had done something else. If all we had was this, we would just say, oh, I I don't see any extension. All I see is the promise being absolutely maintained and indeed fulfilled in the person of Christ. But notice what he does later in the book. I mean, earlier in the book. The Lord has commanded us, me and Barney, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul, one more time. The Lord who I met on the road to Damascus, the one who I was persecuting, and now who I'm proclaiming, he commanded us, me and Barnabas, saying, we're the light. You are to be a light to the Gentiles that, that, I may bring, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he quotes exactly what we have in Isaiah 49, 6. How was he able to do that? Jesus is the one that this was pointed to. God promises that his servant would be a light to the nations. Christ is the servant light. Faith unites us to Christ. Union with Christ makes us servants with Christ. And we join Christ as lights to the nations. This Old Testament promise through Jesus gets appropriated even by us. Because we're in the servant, we bear the mission of the servant, every one of us in this room. 
I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I'll walk among you and you will be my God. And Sorry, and I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. We, we already saw this. This is that Leviticus text that Paul cites in 2 Corinthians 6. How does he build the bridge? I think it's maintaining with extension. Maintaining the promise. The promise doesn't change. I'll make my dwelling among you, but then he extends it to include another. God promises to dwell and walk among his people as a movable temple in the Old Testament. Christ is God's temple. Faith unites us to Christ. Union with Christ makes us God's temple. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6. And so, right now, God's on the move, building his temple. And one day, that temple will fill all things. This necessitates holiness in our lives. At Pentecost, the, the uh, pillar cloud came down and rested on the sanctuary, the people. And all of a sudden, the temple began to grow as the Spirit of Christ began to inhabit the people. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the temple has expanded. But all the house cleaning isn't done yet. Like as in the days of the Canaanites, there needs to be a house cleaning and it will come when God will come and destroy all of his adversaries and so that there will in that day be nothing else accursed. And all that will be left is the temple. But the temple by its nature distinguished the holy from the common. And so even Revelation 21 is able to say, actually there won't be a temple because all there will be is the holy of holies. And we'll be there fellowshipping with our God and with his lamb seated on the throne. Promises like, fear not for I am with you, be not dismayed for I am your God, I will strengthen you, help you, uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was a promise given to Israel. Or a promise given directly to Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Jeremiah in that text is representing the restored remnant that was coming on the other side of the 70-year exile. I think the same thing is happening. The promise is being maintained, but the, the recipients are being extended. That's how we can claim this promise. God makes promises to Israel as king, Christ represents the people. He is Israel. All God's promises find their yes in Christ. Faith unites us with Christ, and all those united with Christ, therefore, will enjoy the promises God gave to Israel. Now we're coming in for a landing, okay? Old Testament promises completed. This is the third takeaway. Ruler from Bethlehem, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There was only one Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, and only one Messiah who was to be born in Bethlehem, and he's already come. He's already been born, and so when we go to promises like that, we should be thinking through the lens of Christ and recognize, oh, this is an already promise. It's already been accomplished. 
This is why Matthew declares, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These, Matthew is, in a, is one of the primary gospels, I mean, more than other gospels, he goes out of his way to talk about fulfillment of Old Testament promises. He does that because Deuteronomy uh, 15.22 said, this is how you test whether a prophet is real or not, whether he's truly from God. These Old Testament completed promises, don't push them aside. They're massively important for us. Why? Because God has been trustworthy. We can look back and see his faithfulness, and therefore it can awaken hope that he's going to fulfill all the rest of the promises that he's declared. We need that in our pursuit of God. We need that thanksgiving. Remember, don't be anxious, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. That thanksgiving is the recollection of past grace that awakens our hope in future grace. The second reason that these completed promises are important is because often these completed promises were accompanied by uh, a wake of blessing. Notice here, after he's born, he would shepherd his people. If you came in tonight weary, broken, hurting, know this, you have a shepherd who will not break a bruised reed and he will not blow out a faintly burning wick. He's the greatest provider, the greatest protector. He's a shepherd And he's only able to be that because he's already been born, a child king. And not only that, look at the end of Micah 5, 5. He shall be their peace. That's what Jesus is for us now. He's reconciled, made peace with God. All of us in this room, I'm just looking out, and we've got people from different tongues and tribes and backgrounds gathered together in union with Jesus. That's peace already accomplished in the person of Christ. And then when we face toils in our own soul, peace, it's been purchased for us because Christ has come. He's already been born. So keep your eye out as you're reading the promises. Even the completed ones can give us great hope. Last takeaway. Old Testament promises transformed. Now this category is without question the most controversial meaning that other professors who watch my video will probably take me to task most often right here. Because what we're doing with transformed promises relates mostly to the shadows that find substance in Christ or what we call patterns or types in the Old Testament that escalate and find ultimate climax in the person of Jesus. And where you see that climax, that means you've transformed something. You've moved from anticipation to realization. And the promise gets transformed in the stage of fulfillment. Transformed in its makeup, transformed in its participants. So the only promise I'm going to look at tonight, and it's it's a biggie, heavy hitter one, for those who are trying to wrestle with how does the whole Bible hang together, and that is the promise of land to Israel. 
God made the promise in Genesis 17, I've made you a father of a multitude of nations, Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So here, in association with Abraham's ultimate identity as a father of a multitude of nations, he would be a father of a nation, and that nation would have a land as an everlasting possession. And that land is called Canaan. Now that's the Old Testament promise. What's striking then is when we come to Romans, Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Look at that. God promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Canaan, the world, transformation. How did we get there? Well, look first at Galatians chapter 3. We're back in this text. We've already seen this one. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Promises, plural. I think that means land, blessing, and seed. All of those made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs of all those Abrahamic promises. Now, what I want you to see is the quotation in Galatians 3, and to your offspring. Paul doesn't just say to your offspring. He says, and to your offspring, which is really awkward in the flow. But what it suggests is that he's actually citing a text that has and in it. And the Greek in the New Testament parallels the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis only in three texts. Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 17, 8, and Genesis 24, verse 7. And guess what? All of them are land promises. So even though all the promises find their yes in Christ... Paul seems to be going a step further here. He seems to be drawing attention to the land promise, which is where inheritance was bound up, and saying, you can't read the land promise apart from through Christ. Everything comes through him. And guess what? If you're Christ's, you're heirs of all that promise. So where's Paul coming from? I think in Genesis, we saw some hints. Number one, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, all the nations of the earth. I already noted that in this text, it suggests that a single male descendant of Abraham is the one through whom all the blessing will reach the nations. And Abraham will move from stage one, Mosaic covenant, father of one nation, to stage two of the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, when he'll be a father of a multitude. It'll happen when this single deliverer rises. But notice what it tells us about the deliverer. He will possess the gate of his enemies. What does that suggest? It suggests that he has a kingdom and there's enemies around and that his territory is expanding to possess the enemy gate. You see that? It's envisioning a growth of territory, 
Not only that text, Genesis 26, 3 and 4. Sojourn Isaac in this land. Notice the difference between singular and plural land in the text. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And then he says, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now back in Genesis 22, that statement, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, was explicitly singular, which suggests that in your offspring, here, even though it's ambiguous, there's no pronoun to tell us that it's singular, already in Genesis 22, it told us this is a singular person, one male descendant through whom the world would be blessed. But if the offspring in that verse is singular, what about in the previous verse? And I will give to your offspring, that is Christ, all these lands. We have texts like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth. The whole earth. That's the vision. God promises Abraham and his seed the land of Canaan and more lands. They will inherit all these lands when the promised seed serves as a blessing to the nations. Christ is the promised seed in whom the land promises find their yes. Union with Christ by faith makes us heirs of all the promises given to Abraham, which means that Christians will inherit the world. Three guidelines. Celebrate that in Christ all God's promises, old and new, are already yes, both blessings and curses. Affirm that while all the Bible's promises, old and new, are already yes in Christ, they are not yet all fully realized. And finally, consider how Christ's fulfillment of Old Testament hopes influences our appropriation of Old Testament promises, whether it's maintained with no extension, maintained with extension, completed, or transformed. Isaiah declared that throughout the ages no ear has heard nor eye has seen a God like our God who works on behalf of those who wait for him. So my hope tonight has been to urge you to be a people who wait fervently, trusting every one of the promises of our God. Paul said all the promises are yes in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. But just two verses earlier, he declared straight out, God is faithful. God is faithful in all of his words, and kind in all of his works. Psalm 145, 13. The Lord is faithful. He'll establish you and guard you against the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. If we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he can't deny himself. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust your souls to whom? The faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4.19 Remember also that if we confess our sins, what is he? He's faithful. 
faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. One day, one day God will complete all of his promises to us in Christ. And in that day, we will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Behold, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen? Amen. Go in peace.